Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. Easter is my favorite holiday. In my opinion, it's the celebration of the most important thing that's ever happened, and I'm really excited that it's coming up in less than two weeks. Here at Grace Downtown, we usually take some time every year to remember the story of the final week of Jesus' life before we start celebrating his resurrection. This year, we're offering daily emails with readings, reflections, and prayers to help you dig deeper into that story. We're also getting together with Grace Meridian Hill and Grace Mosaic for special services on the Thursday and Friday before Easter. Those are holidays that are usually called Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. That all kicks off this Sunday, and you can learn more about it on our website, gracedc.net slash downtown. This week on the podcast... We're going back to Good Friday 2010, when we had four pastors each give a short scripture reading and a short sermon to commemorate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We're going to be taking four different selections from the first two books of the New Testament in the Bible, Matthew and Mark, and we're just going to read along with you uh, pieces of the story of the day that Jesus was actually uh, put on a Roman cross. And so we'll read that together, reflect on it together, and hopefully address that question. How can the death of Jesus possibly be called good? We'll turn to our first reading that you'll find in your bulletin in front of you. This is from Mark chapter 14, and you can follow along, or if you want to, you can just listen, uh, because it's meant to be heard as well. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. 
And they all left him and fled. Peter, James, and John, not only friends and followers of Jesus, but in fact, the closest of Jesus' friends during the three years that he did his public ministry. They're in the garden. And you know, it's not like they've committed this terrible atrocity, is it? Or at least not yet. What role are they playing in this narrative? Is it the role of treacherous betrayer? Well, Judas has that one covered. Is it the role of legally crooked magistrate? We'll meet them in a few minutes. Is it the role of religious hypocrites? Well, we've got a waiting line for that one. What was there recorded for all history, grand offense in this scene? They're tired. And that's what rattles me, at least, about this passage. Because it hits a little too close to home. You see, I love sleep. <laughs> Maybe you do too. More to the point, I'm, I'm learning to be more honest about how truly weak I really am. Seeing myself in these three men and how totally totally, utterly powerless they are to will themselves into heroism in this moment. Maybe you feel like that way yourself today. Jesus here is overcome with nauseating pressure and dread, knowing that unimaginable suffering awaits him in just the next 12 hours, and still apparently nothing can keep these three men awake, awake to support their friend and master. Nothing can keep them awake. Not their strength of loyalty in friendship to him. Not the sincerity of their religious devotion. Their commitment to pray. Not even the power of sheer embarrassment. Getting caught on the spot three times. When Jesus says to them, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, I don't think he's chewing them out. I think he's just making sure that they notice how helpless they really are. The question is, do we notice the same thing about ourselves? See, a lot of times in life when we feel like we're faltering or failing, we feel like the only way that we can actually get God to accept us or notice us, let alone love us, is to sneak up on him in the darkness of the night and to come with threats and intimidation with swords and clubs, if you will, like the crowds that came to haul Jesus off. And we don't realize that he's already given himself over for us. Helpless, powerless people like you and me. What we often forget is that when Jesus prayed, accepting this cup of humiliation and judgment that he would take upon himself, Surely, going back and forth three times, he prayed, knowing that he would do that for these sleepy ones to his left and to his right. Powerless people like me, like you. In Romans 5, Paul says this, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for us. When we were still powerless, Christ loved us. That's good news for me. That's good news for you.
My name is David Noble, and uh, I'm a part of the pastoral staff here at Grace DC as well. And a little shorter, too. Uh, I'm also someone who has in the past denied the truth about who Jesus is, and someone who every time I hurt God or hurt another person is denying the truth about who Jesus is. And uh, I'm hoping that we find good news for me and for you as, uh, as I read Matthew 26, the selection from there. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these, man, these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them. Uh, Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The religious leaders here, Caiaphas and the council, are denying the truth of who Jesus is. They are in a difficult position because they are the power brokers. They stand in the gap between the people of Israel and the Roman authorities. And so anything that's going to threaten that balance of power is going to threaten their position of privilege. So for reasons of self-preservation, they cannot allow anyone to make a claim that, that he is God. And some will say, now Jesus, doesn't he never really actually claim to be God in the scriptures. But we see here in the response of this courtroom, this mock court, that he must have claimed to be God in what he is saying about being the son of man. Because this, this scene that's supposed to be an orderly courtroom scene devolves into chaos and slapping and spitting and hasty judgment. So Jesus is a risk to the religious leaders And that continuing to allow him to live would be unacceptable to their position of power and privilege. The bystanders aren't so sure. These are the crowds that just earlier in the week were were welcoming Jesus as their king. And and, And later in the day will be 
condemning him and insisting that he go to the cross. Today, in this moment, right now, they're in a place of of non-committance. They prefer to remain open-minded, to coolly gather their data, to seek to understand, perhaps. But really, they're committed to not being committed to the truth about who Jesus is. And as we see with these people, and as we know in our own hearts, commitment is scary. Commitment is risky. And, and with the bystanders, people like you and me, refusing to commit ends up being a denial the next day or later in the day. And then we see Peter, close friend of Jesus, has walked with Jesus, eaten meals with him for the last three years, worked with him. This is a close companion. I don't know if anyone has anyone that we work with, live with all the time, three years. He's a very close friend, and yet uh, Peter himself is denying the truth about who Jesus is. When threatened in his own heart by a little servant girl, But any of us, if we were backwoods people coming to the big city for the first time, being being confronted with uh, these accusations, things not going the way you expected them ever to go, would we have responded any differently? Peter also is reacting out of self-preservation, just like the religious leaders who are denying the truth about Jesus, just like the bystanders who are denying the truth about who Jesus is. Peter, too, is denying the truth about who Jesus is. And each of us, at some point or another, if we're honest with ourselves, have denied the truth about who Jesus is. The difference with Peter is is humility. He allows the force of his own denial to knock him to the ground. So, there can be good news for those who uh, deny the truth about Jesus. The question becomes, Are we going to choose to remain blind in our self-preservation because we think we we have our religion and our politics all figured out? Or are we going to to commit to remaining blind uh, with our self-preservation because we would prefer to seem open-minded and flexible and non-committal to one way or another? Or will we go the way of Peter and being open to admitting and to accepting the truth about who Jesus is, the one who never denies the truth about us and yet loves us. Good afternoon. I'm Russ Whitfield. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I will be doing a reflection out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified! And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified! So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The prison cell was probably cold, dark, and lonely. Barabbas probably replayed the scenes of his crimes in his mind regularly. But on that day, his senses were probably particularly heightened because from his prison cell, he could hear the shouts of a crowd across the way. From his prison cell, he could tell that things were probably not normal over near the governor's house. But what did he care? What did this have to do with him? Barabbas would soon find out that the scene going on at the governor's house had everything to do with him. You see, while he was sitting in his cell, the Roman governor was in the process of trying to get himself out of a predicament. He was in a bind. He was unwilling to sentence this innocent man to death, but he was also unwilling to risk a riot if he should fail to please the crowd a group that was baying for blood. But a stroke of genius washes over Pontius Pilate. He remembers this custom in which he can release for the people any one prisoner of their choosing. And so he presents for them the starkest contrast possible. Barabbas, a man who was known for being a murderous, treacherous criminal, or Jesus, a man who healed the sick and showed mercy to the disenfranchised. To Pilate, this was a no-brainer. Obviously, they would have this innocent man, Jesus, released. But this was not going to be Pilate's lucky day. Because when he asked the people whom he should release for them, they'd cry out in chorus, Barabbas! Pilate is shocked. So he asked them again, whom would you like me to release for you? And they all cry out, Barabbas! Now he's reeling, he's reeling. And so he says, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all cry out in chorus, let him be crucified. Now Pilate goes on the defensive. Why? What evil has he done? But they cry out all the more. Let him be crucified. By this time, beads of sweat are probably collecting on the forehead of the notorious prisoner Barabbas. Because, you see, Barabbas could only hear one side of the conversation that was taking place from his distant cell. He couldn't hear the lone voice of the, of the governor, 
But he could hear the shouts of the crowd saying, Barabbas, crucify him. Let him be crucified. His heart is probably pounding. Minutes seem like an eternity, and knots are in his stomach. He knows the fate that awaits him. And as he's trying to gather his composure, all of a sudden he hears the keys of the Roman guards jingling. Their footsteps draw nearer and nearer and nearer until they are in front of his cell. His eyes meet theirs, and he slowly rises to meet his fate. But can you imagine the shock that came over Barabbas when one of the guards opens the cell and says to him, it's your lucky day. Someone else was chosen to die in your place. You're free to go. As the dark clouds of Good Friday gather, we need to see that this passage is a ray of hope for us. It's hope for you and it's hope for me because if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that we too are prisoners. Though the circumstances of our imprisonment vary, we all know that we are prisoners to something. Prisoners to greed, prisoners to success, prisoners to chocolate. Come on, y'all know. We're all prisoners of something. But what Matthew is trying to show us is that though we are prisoners, there is someone who is willing to take our place. Though we deserve to hear the cries from afar saying, let them be crucified, let them be crucified. Matthew is showing us that there is someone who would say, no, let me be crucified. Let them be free. Barabbas knew himself to be a guilty, guilty prisoner. Do we know ourselves to be the same? If we can see this, then there is grace to be found in Good Friday. If we can see this, we will understand that there is good news for prisoners. Well, good afternoon. I'm Glenn Hoberg, the fourth pastor type that's appeared before you today. And we'll conclude us with our reading. This comes also out of Matthew. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came near to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Aloi, Alo, Lemma, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Toni Morrison, in her novel, A Mercy, uh, records a conversation between a teenage slave and her mistress. I don't think God knows who we are. I think he would like us if he knew us, but I don't, I don't know if he knows about us. But he made us, miss, no? He did, but he made the tales of peacocks, too. That must have been harder. Oh, but miss, we sing and talk. Peacocks do not. We need to. Peacocks don't. What else do we have? Thoughts? Hands to make things? All well and good, but that's our business, not God's. He's doing something else in the world. We are not on his mind. What is he doing then if not watching over us? Lord knows. I think a wonderful uh, expression of how forsakenness often feels to people. Uh, Jesus utters these words. He cries them out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Closing with some words from a Hebrew psalm, Psalm 22. And as he does, it really serves as a summary of his experience. He had been physically forsaken. Even up to this point, he had uh, underwent several beatings, the last of which was a scourging, where they actually whipped you with metal and glass and the tip of a whip. Most people didn't survive that because it actually would rip out their organs. And then he's brought up to the Roman crucifixion, which was really the most brutal and horrific death. Uh, you would be hoisted up on a cross, either nailed or tied, and then for the next several hours, by pushing on your knees or pulling on your arms, trying not to suffocate. In between that, there would be convulsions. In the end, the, the person would die of a cardiac arrest or suffocation. So he had been forsaken in the worst way physically. And then he had been forsaken socially and emotionally. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals in Rome. In fact, a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified unless Caesar gave a direct edict. This is why they crucified people outside of the city, because it was so shameful. And once they were, it was common that people would pass by and begin to mock and scorn the person crucified because they were regarded as the worst of criminals. But there was also spiritual forsakenness. Even the Romans would have said the gods must have something against this guy. And for the Israelites, it was more pronounced because it was taught anybody that was hung up that way was cursed by God. They had committed crimes against God and humanity so terrible that this was the sign of their cursing. So there's a question that runs, alo run, runs along this entire narrative we've read in this brief time. And that is, uh, why would Jesus undergo this? Pilate himself said that there was no sin that he had committed. The gospel accounts and those closest to him would say they had never seen him sin. And the answer comes from Jesus himself when he said, I came to give my life as a ransom. That he wasn't forsaken for himself, but he was forsaken for the world. He was forsaken for you and me. So it wasn't that the Savior couldn't save himself, it was that he wouldn't save himself. And therein lies the good news. Uh, God, uh, knowing full well 
the forsakenness we would face, death, physical, social and emotional. We already experience some of it in this life, but even more so, alienation from God because of our guilt. But lastly, uh, the spiritual forsakenness of having separation. And the good news of the Christian gospel is because Jesus was forsaken in this way, uh, we are no longer forsaken. We can experience acceptance from God fully, forgiveness, and then one day, even life after death. But I get ahead of the story because that's Easter Sunday. <laughs>